The word of God from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please remain standing as we... um dedicate this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we invite you to be present in a special way, Lord. Would you soften our hearts? Um, Lord, I recognize there's a, a slowness in our hearts often to give ourselves fully to you. We recognize that, Lord. But we pray that you would be so kind by your spirit to soften us, to illumine your word, Um, open our eyes, our hearts to you, Lord, by your spirit. Where there's any opposition in our spirit, I pray that you would just take that from us, Lord. Would you bless this time and may this time in your word just be a, a moment to to grow and to change. We need you, Lord. We need you. We are an unclean people living in an unclean city. We need you. Come be with us, we pray, to the glory of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning um, again really is good to be with you and to open up God's word with you. Uh, if you're new, we're currently in the middle of a series of messages about the seven deadly sins. And I hope, you've been, I hope you've been enjoying this. I know I personally have been learning so much. I am personally being challenged. You know, you should know, I really write these sermons for myself. You're just listening in. <laughs> Uh, you know, Jason and I would both say we preach to ourselves. The, this message is relevant for us. You know, if you've, if you've heard of the, you know, the last couple sermons, um, you'll agree. Like, the, this is a relevant topic. But isn't that interesting? I mean, this entire sermon series is about exploring one main concept, Sin. Now, I know that that's an extremely like religious word. Um, it has a lot of different connotations. Uh, believe it or not, sin as a, as a social category, it's actually dying. Um, some people think that sin is just this category that the church invented to uh, oppress people, keep them under their power. Um, some people think that sin is just this primitive notion that doesn't actually truly exist since morality is just a social construct. 
Some people don't think that sin should be in our vocabulary, that we should instead replace it with concepts like disorders or sicknesses or maleducation. You'll, uh, you'll never see the word sin in any government document. Because you know why? Because we don't believe that it is a, a real category to explain the realities of this world. And uh, those responses are more sophisticated and they are indeed worthy of our attention. I don't have time to kind of go through each of them, but I will just quickly express precisely why we need to take moments to explore the reality and the effects of sin. Um, as, I've, as I've been studying for the sermon series, I have been convinced that the doctrine of sin is actually a doctrine of hope. <laughs> like sin and hope go together. Really? Does that sound strange? Uh, of course it does. Let me explain. So most of us look at our lives, and while they're not perfect, we don't really think we have the right to complain. And yet, deep joy, enchanted joy, contagious Joy is it's quite elusive. We live in this state of lukewarmness. We're not totally overwhelmed by depression, but we don't wake up in the morning just excited about our life either. And so we move from one pleasure to another, but nothing truly lasts. And so we've settled with the, the lukewarm lives that we have, and we've stopped dreaming about the possibilities of this world, and instead we use trivial pleasures to act like a narcotic. We're just trying to get through this life with a little bit of entertainment until just one day it ends and we die. And, and there's this kind of subtle cloud of depression that hangs over us, and you resign yourself to that reality because, well, that's just life. And if you're right, if you're right, then there's nothing to do. You're simply waiting for the years to pass by, hopefully with a narcotic of a little bit of self-entertainment. But on the other hand, you can secretly have hope that you're wrong. And deep in your soul, you desperately want to be wrong. Because if you're wrong, then you can have hope for a better day. I mean, think of it sort of like this. Imagine you struggle with aches and pains and like chronic headaches. And it's really miserable. Your life is miserable when you're not taking narcotics. So you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, Ronnie, there's nothing wrong with you. That's just your normal body. If your doctor says that, those words are incredibly depressing because there's nothing to be done. On the other hand, if your doctor were to say, Ronnie, yeah, you are sick, and I know exactly how to heal you, then your diagnosis of sickness all of a sudden turns into this message of joy, right? Doesn't it? That's like sin. A diagnosis of sin can be extremely hopeful. Sin is a category that God gives to infuse in us a hope. It's a declaration that you don't have to live in this cloud of depression, that you can change. 
And that labeling that sin in your heart, by doing so, you're putting yourself in a position to actually enjoy your true humanity. Sin, remember, is this force that disfigures your humanity, and therefore, by diagnosing it, you're putting, your, you're putting into motion this possibility of a renewed hope and a renewed joy. But if you deny that sin exists, then you're destined and doomed to a life that has already reached its climax. But we don't, we don't have to live like that. If you explore the expressions of sin as, as we're trying to do in this sermon series, then you will become co-belligerents with God against the corruption of sin by declaring that both you and this world were meant for deeper glory and deeper joy. And that's how come, with a twist of irony, we're joyfully exploring the depths of sin. <laughs> this doctrine of sin is our way of like protesting the status quo, that this world should not be like this. That our own lives should not be like this. We're asking the Lord for a strong diagnosis that can help us recover the, a hope for a better life and a better world. And so this morning, I am speaking about the sin of sloth. So um, this short sermon series, is a, it's a topical sermon series. It's a little weird. That's not really our jam, but we're just doing it for a short little series. But every week you're going to hear me say that, you know, the sin that we're studying that day is like the worst one, right? Carl Barth says that sloth is the deadliest of the seven sins because sloth conceals itself from the one who exhibits it. So if you looked at the seven and you're like, oh, sloth is up on deck and, you know, I don't really struggle with sloth, then that's a pretty good indicator that you struggle with sloth. So here's the deal. Um, sloth is not just laziness. Uh, remember, the, the list of seven deadly sins first uh, began to take form with Evagrius Ponticus in the fourth century. You'll remember that. And the word he uses is not sloth. He uses acedia. So sloth is actually just one aspect of acedia, but it's so much more. Acedia is this very sophisticated word with a lot of nuances and a lot of implications. So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin point one by examining a series of definitions in order to kind of get a sense of this word acedia. And then second, we'll look at some indicators or um, some symptoms of how... Sloth manifests itself in our lives, and then we'll conclude with remedies, with some remedies. So let's begin with definitions first. So as I just mentioned, so Evagrius Ponticus first compiled this list, and if you'll remember, he was a monk who lived many years in these sort of proto-monasteries, and he had a nickname for Acedia. He called it the Noonday Devil, the Noonday Devil. And where did that come from? So in Psalm 91, the passage that was read for us by Krista, the psalmist recites all the, these dangers that God protects his people from. And then in verse 6, the psalmist declare that God will protect us from 
The destruction that wastes a noonday. The destruction that wastes a noonday. So Evagrius was part of this, you know, monastery in the, that resided in the desert, right? He's part of the Desert Fathers. And so from about 10 in the morning till about 2 p.m., the monks often stayed in their chambers in order to avoid the heat. And Evagrius noted that the heat was often so oppressive that it made them doubt their calling to serve the church. In fact, they experienced contempt for their work. During those hours, they would experience a certain sadness, a resentment, even an opposition toward any participation in the things of God. And this phenomena is what he called the noonday devil, acedia. And these feelings of sadness and depression made the monks slow to fulfill their duties. And this is how come we call it sometimes sloth, right? That slowness. But it's more than that. See, acedia is not depression, right? Because depression is a medical condition. This is a deep sickness of the soul. It's a lack of care for, the, for your soul, it's a, it's a restlessness that is characterized by this opposition to care about your soul or the purposes of God. So Dante, right, in his divine, uh, his divine comedy, he depicts acedia as a failure to love God with one's heart, soul, and mind. And it's not, it's not a general laziness. It's a laziness to love the right things. Acedia is a sadness of the soul that creates this opposition and laziness towards loving the right things. You know, Rebecca DeYoung, who I cite quite a bit, she says that acedia is in opposition to the joy that we should have over being united to Christ. Does that make sense? So it's a spiritual laziness that is rooted in a certain expression of sadness. Thomas Aquinas calls this the sin against joy. He says it's a form of sadness of a particular sort, a sadness about God, a sadness in the soul, and it manifests itself in a slowness to pursue God. Dorothy Sayers would define it like this. She says, it is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds a purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. Can you see how this noonday devil, acedia, it's difficult to define because there's so many like aspects to it. But what I've said in all of these definitions that I've tried to offer up so far, what I, what I see is that there is this hidden sadness that creates a lethargy towards resting in God. It's a, it's a lethargy toward deep spiritual concern over one's salvation, and it creates prayerlessness and a general lack of concern for God, for the church, and for people. You know, the Psalms are quite, are quite helpful because instead of definitions, they, they give us pictures of acedia. So in Psalm 61, 
He, it's, the psalmist says, when my heart is faint. <laughs> or in Psalm 32, when my strength was dried up. Or the, my favorite, Psalm 119, my soul melts away for sorrow. Isn't that good? Sometimes it takes a poetic image to give us the best definition. When my soul melts away for sorrow. So how... How do we know? I mean, we've looked at some definitions, but how do we know if we're struggling with acedia? So let's move to our second point. Let me outline a few indications or a few symptoms. The most classic manifestation of acedia, of course, is a lack of diligence or indifference towards what you do. And often this is laziness. So for instance, in Ecclesiastes 10, 18, he'll say, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. So it's not, it's not, it shouldn't surprise us that then psychologists and counselors have noted that people who are depressed often have extremely messy cars or messy homes, right? Because there's a, there's a connection between sadness and our diligence. A, a lack of hope steals our energy, you know, to just do anything, really. But it's extremely important to understand that that's just one indication. Because some of you have extremely clean homes and clean cars, and you work very long hours, and you suffer from what we might call workaholism. So listen closely if that's you. Addiction to our work is also an indication of acedia. And let me explain what I mean and why. Acedia at its core is a lack of tenacity to pursue God. And so work, even hard work, can become an excuse for not seeking God. So our work then becomes the primary excuse for avoiding spending time with our church family. It becomes the primary excuse for avoiding time in prayer and Bible reading. I mean, we'll say things like this you know, I work so hard at my job or I study so much at school and Sunday is just my only day to sleep in. Can you hear the lack of tenacity and enthusiasm or fervor for pursuing God? I mean, we have enthusiasm for our jobs. We have tenacity for even the Mandalorian, but not for Christ. That is acedia. Loving God with our whole heart, loving God's church with our whole heart, loving our neighbor with our whole heart, these things receive no energy from us. There's this deep spiritual lethargy to making God the, the focal point of our energy. And there, this is a massive crisis in the Western church. Blaise Pascal once wrote this about acedia. He says, The same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some business deal or for something that could challenge his reputation, he is the very one who knows that he is going to lose everything through death but feels neither anxiety nor emotion. It is a monstrous thing to see one in the same heart at the same time so sensitive to minor things 
and so strangely insensitive to the greatest. You know, here in Denver, we invest incredible energy and resources and tenacity to trivial things. Because I promise you, Christians in Syria, I mean, they would die for an opportunity to pursue Christ in the ways that are available to us. And yet somehow, there is no energy left for Christ. The noonday devil is well-rooted in our souls. Let me give you one more indicator of acedia that's, I think, prevalent here in Denver. We live in a culture of um, boredom, boredom and distraction. And here's how this happens. Uh, Because of general, if not subconscious, discouragement, we begin to experience boredom, right? Nothing satisfies, nothing tastes. Sometimes it's a midlife crisis. Sometimes it's because you think no one gets you. Uh, The philosopher, John Paul Sartre, he calls this nausea. When you have no sense of God's glorious calling in your life, it creates a certain fatigue. And then what happens? Well, you have to create the social narcotic that will help you forget about this existential nausea. Instead of paying attention to your soul, you distract yourself with the intent of numbing the apathy. And so we binge watch Netflix while our Bibles collect dust. We watch every single sports event possible, countless hours of daytime TV. We waste hours and hours on social media, reading over hundreds, if not thousands of posts. We play hours and hours of video games. We spend virtually more time in a fantasy world than in the real world. And we can never redeem that time. And that wasted time was really our way of avoiding God and his purposes in this world. And there's this melancholy that fills our boredom while we try to distract ourselves so that we don't have to think about it. And acedia produces this unfulfilled spiritual potential. Acedia produces this inherent resistance and opposition to spiritual things. Do you, do you experience lethargy or resistance in your heart to take care of your own soul? Are you lazy? Are you a workaholic? Are you bored and constantly distracting yourself? Like when you're waiting in line, can you not, do you, do you go to your phone instead of going to the person beside you? Do you find it hard to be still and silent before the Lord? Do you find it hard to pray, to read? You're in the grips of acedia. You are in the grips of the noonday devil. And this particular sin wants to rob you of your humanity. This oppressive sadness wants to make you less than the glory 
that you were designed for. So we looked at definitions, we looked at some symptoms and indicators. Let's move to this final section of the sermon, because it's important to consider now the resources and and the remedies that the Lord has given us to fight against this sickness. When we're slow to look at the sadness in our soul, uh, we find there, right, what I would say, we, we find there a lack of confidence in God's goodness towards us. You hear what I said? When we look at the sadness, we find there a lack of confidence in God's goodness towards us. There, there's a spiritual sickness that makes us feel stuck. You feel stuck between the self that you are and the self that you can't bear to become. You have no sense that you're truly forgiven, and it actually produces a kind of self-destruction. Karl Barth, again, says that people want the security of God's love, but without the struggle to be made new. And this disparity produces lethargy instead of this urgent concern to, produce, to pursue God. And so, how do we break the cycle? Well, first, this is what I would say. First, we need to shed a few tears. That is to say, we are combating selfish melancholy with holy tears of repentance and honesty. Hey, men, look at me. Healthy people cry. It's a sign of emotional health. See, when we shed tears, we are allowing ourselves to feel the sadness that's filling up in our souls. Tears help us to acknowledge that we have a problem and that we need to be saved. You see, acedia is a lack of concern about one's salvation. And so our tears come as this form of protest against that spiritual indifference. So instead of numbing ourselves, we allow ourselves to feel. And tears acknowledge that something is wrong and that it needs to be changed. And tears are stronger than depression. Tears are the water that penetrates the hard soil to make way for God's mercy. Here's another remedy. The deepest longing of every human heart is to see the face of God. St. Augustine said that God himself is the only thing that can truly give you a fully realized satisfaction in your soul. Because nothing else will do, right? Not, not vacations, not a better body, not fame, not pleasure, not children, not a spouse. Only God himself can bring us the joy that we crave. And so if this is true, how can we enter and enjoy the divine life of God himself? What means has God given to us to experience that divine life? And I mean now, in this moment. Like if, if acedia is the spiritual sickness, then getting that divine life into us is what can heal us, right? So how does this happen? 
the primary means of grace that God has given to us to enjoy him are his word and prayer and sacrament. Now, the sacraments we enjoy every Sunday, and so we hunger for the bread and wine, believing with faith that God wants to nourish us, and we make every effort to never miss an opportunity to come to this table to participate in the sacraments and the Eucharist. But that's not the only thing that Christians do. Christians regularly read God's word and pray. I mean, how do, you, how do you keep God as your first priority? Well, how do you keep anything a priority in your life, right? If you want to make sure that you don't leave the house without your cell phone, what do you do? I don't know. You put it by your keys. You, you create habits. You write notes, right? It's, it's the same with God. You have to create notes, a, a daily reading plan of the Bible. Show me a person that does not have a plan to read the Bible, and I will show you someone who struggles with acedia. Ideally, your time in God's word will be regular. Maybe every morning you wake up to read and pray at the same time. You know, some of you have never read the Bible in your life. And so having a pastor stand up here and tell you that's what you need to do can feel really intimidating or judgy even. Listen, don't, I don't want that for you. It's okay. We're here to help. We have Bible reading plans that are extremely simple and modest. Don't start with read the whole Bible in one year plan. Don't do that. Start modestly. But these plans tell you exactly what to read each day. They're very achievable. And listen, please talk to us. Talk to one of the staff. Talk to an elder if you need help. Either way, you have to be reminded of God's actions in the world every single day. You must learn how every page of the Bible is a song about Jesus. And then you must learn how to pray. Remember, it's Bible and prayer. And I'm not just saying, uh, I'm not just telling you to say thank you in your prayers, which is important. I'm not just talking about making requests, and those are important too. But I'm talking about practicing the presence of God. And listen, you listen, at first, this is going to feel like a labor, right? It's going to be hard, but you must do it. You know, unhappy marriages are like metaphors for acedia. No matter what a husband or a wife feels like on that day, they got to keep working to keep the bonds of love vibrant. Because if they get lazy, the relationship will corrode. So marriages are hard work. I mean, they're worth it, but they're hard work. Our life with God is like a marriage. Although it can feel like hard work, we gotta, we got to nourish it with word and prayer every single day. Prayer nourishes our bond of love with God. So carve out time for silence, like to put away your phone, nowhere near you. Just sit in solitude with God. Strangely, solitude takes work. It takes work to live in God's presence. But listen, anything that's worth doing, if your parents have never told you this, anything that's worth doing is hard at first. But don't give up. 
This is like playing piano. Even Mozart had to practice. Or Beethoven, dun, 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 Chiago. That was for you. But with habits and commitments, it does create um, conditions for incredible joy. Again, listen to me. I know this can sound intimidating, um, me being prescriptive in this way. That's why we're here. That's why you have a community. Let us help you grow. Our small groups are perfect for this, this mutual encouragement. But if you truly want to grow, if you really want to grow, if you want to change, you have to reorganize your life. There's no easy fix. There's no pill. It takes daily and ordinary faithfulness to be transformed. So let me repeat those words of Karl Barth. We want the security of God's love, but without the sacrifice and struggle to be made new. Let's, let's make that not true here. Because we want to be a community that is loving and patient, not judgy. We want to encourage one another to regularly partake in the sacraments and Bible reading and prayer. But you guys, if, if you haven't, if you've checked out, please listen with, because I've got one more remedy. The noonday devil is, appro- is oppressive. And so I said, hey, we've got to combat this sin with tears and with regular enjoyment of sacrament, word, and prayer. But the noonday devil, acedia, it flourishes under this latent belief that God doesn't truly care about you. And if God doesn't care about you, then why would we care about ourselves? Why, would we, why should we have tenacity toward our own spiritual care? And here's why. Here's why. Because God first had tenacity towards your spiritual care before you did. And how do I know this? How am I so certain about this? The gospel reminds us that Jesus saw the treachery of the noonday devil and did something about it. He endured the oppression of the noonday in its fullest sense. In Matthew 15, the gospel writer says this, and when the sixth hour, do you know what the sixth hour is? It's noon. When the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus beat the noonday devil at noon. Jesus understood the oppression of the sin of Asedia, and he took it upon himself at noon on a cross. And Jesus, with great tenacity, marched to that cross. And he took the sin of a city upon himself, and he died there as our substitute. This is what we believe. And then he rose again to new life. And this new life, because of what he accomplished at noon, he promises to work out in us. 
And the way that you find energy and tenacity to, toward our spiritual life with God, with church, with each other, is by first understanding the energy and tenacity that Jesus had towards redeeming us from this sadness that paralyzes us. Jesus' death on a cross at noon is a declaration that God cares so profoundly about you. He loves you. You're worth his own son. And so in light of this tenacious love, we have resources and remedies to fight against the lethargy of acedia. Amen? Amen.